Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. Go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Tucker Dupree, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Brett Hawk? I'm good, buddy. I'm good. Now, listen, this is uh, this is swimming stories, basically. I tell swimming stories on this podcast, and you have one of the most incredible swimming stories out of anyone that's been on this show. So um, for those that don't know you, we'll kind of we'll kind of get into it. But um, incredible, remarkable story. You're, you're a great guy. We, we met through Fitter and Faster Swim Clinics. We did some clinics together and have done many for the past couple of years. And, uh, and you're one of the best clinicians on the roster. Uh, but most people don't know that you have a disability, I guess they call that, um, but most people don't even recognize it, but you do have one and, and, and it's, uh, we'll, we'll just get into it. But in terms of your swimming life story, where did it start for you? So I actually started swimming on an accident, um, just because I played soccer most of my life. Um, and I didn't start competitive swimming until the age of 14. Um, my sister swam her senior year of high school. Um, and I was, intrigued after just kind of sitting in the stands all the time um and then after that i picked up club swimming the senior or sorry the summer um between my freshman and sophomore year so um it was very late um but i enjoyed the sport so much i fell in love with it right away and um after that i had the opportunity um to swim as the team captain of my high school and all of that and then the option to swim in college um, kind of came to fruition my senior year. And then um, that year basically changed my life forever. Um, in October of my senior year is when I started to lose my vision. Um, so I am 80% blind, um, but all of that didn't happen till my senior year. Um, so I think that um, swimming kind of chose me. Um, it was, uh, I had no idea that that was going to be my future, but I'm glad that it did. Yeah. I mean, crazy turn of events for you to be you know just a, a regular person regular swimmer have a regular story normal kind of progression through the sport and then it was really one day that changed your life I mean you talked about it there as something that happened but but it really was just a one day event wasn't it yeah um, I have a lot of tattoos and one of the tattoos in my arm is uh, 1018 2006 um, I woke up on that day rubbing my right eye looking out my left eye and um, I wasn't able to see a USA swimming sticker um, on my closet door. And I uh, got out of bed and went to the bathroom and took out my contact lenses and put new ones in. And um, that day um, kicked off about two months of testing um, until we found out um, that I was diagnosed with a condition called Libra's hereditary optic neuropathy. Um, and it took 80% of my vision in both eyes um, over the course of about three months. Um, so it was pretty quick vision loss. Um, like I mentioned, I was in high school, right? So slowly things would start to disappear in front of me, um, like worksheets in the classroom. I wasn't able to see the clock across the pool anymore. Um, coaching had to change. So my coaches could not, they couldn't stand on deck and say like, Hey, you're putting your hand in like this. Um, cause I couldn't see what this was. So, um, a lot of things changed really quickly. Um, but a lot of it, um, 
was just about being adaptive, right? I had an opportunity to say, all right, is this going to be the end or am I going to keep going? So um, the good thing is that our sport is very cathartic. You kind of put your face in the water and you don't have to talk about it. Um, so I was able to kind of reflect a lot on my, myself and, and kind of figure out what this meant to me and, and how I was going to change the world with a disability. I mean, you're talking about it now in, in very kind of, um, you know, plain, simple terms, but, but obviously the day that it happens, I mean, it's going to scare the shit out of you. Does it not to, to be like, what the hell is going on here? So I know that you had a conversation with your mom and, and, you know, back and forward, obviously moving into the testing, but specifically on that day, were you, were you freaking out a little bit? I was, um, the, the best way I've ever been able to describe it to someone is it's kind of like you got hit in your head, like really hard. And it's like starry. Um, that was the beginning, right? So the left eye was the only one that it kind of just was like starry in the middle. And I was like, maybe it's diet. I had a very like proactive mindset of like, we're going to figure this out. So it wasn't, I guess the fact that I was like, I, I didn't know the end game, right? Like at the time, I just knew that my left eye was weird. So it kicked off testing, but at the same time, it was more of, they're going to figure it out. Like I had this mental, like just tug of war in my head of like, is it happening? Is it not happening? And it just mm. really kind of, um, it was very fast paced. So I think that there, it wasn't painful as well. I think that contributed to a lot of the, oh, it's going to be something simple, right? We're just going to figure it out and move on. Mm. Um, so I would say those are the pieces that really um, kept me kind of on track, if you will. Of I just thought that we we're going to figure it out and we knew what was going to happen. Um, but little did I know that I had a very rare condition that they had no idea what was going to happen. So uh, it, it was a lot of testing, but um, it, the freak out really happened. I would say um, when my right eye started to go bad as well, because um, it didn't happen at the same time. So I would say that right eye happening, um, losing vision in that eye is when I was like, shit, all right, this is real, right? Like this is, you know, I, I had to give up my driver's license, which I was in North Carolina. That's your independence in high school, right? Like driving yourself to school, to practice, that was no, it was no longer calling your parents to pick you up. So I think that that is when I was like, all right, this is kind of that tipping point of acceptance. Um, and that's when it started to kind of just drive home of like, this is real. Uh, a couple of things here. Now you, you said it was rare. Now, how, how rare is this? When I was diagnosed, I was one of 9,000 people in human history to have this exact genetic mutation. Um, there is uh, the disease I have is LHON for short. Um, there's a lot of different strains of it, um, but the version that I have is one of the rarer of the three. Um, so that was the diagnosis at the time. That was 2006. Um, I'm sure there's more people with it now. Um, I don't really keep up on that stat, but um, when I was diagnosed, they told me that I was one of 9,000. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Um, you know, the Tucker that I know is now is very confident, very sure of himself, um, you know, gets around as a normal person other than the driving aspect uh, was, has there been times where it's just been you in a room and it's just been really difficult emotionally to deal with? Yeah, I think that the the tough part I would say with that of like kind of grappling of the reality was was probably the fact that I didn't have control of what was going on. Um and and I know that I've had a lot of coaches tell me that before, you know, the 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 piece of advice, you know, only worry about the things you could control. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when they're not in your control, that was probably the hardest part. Um, but it all happened without, you know, me being able to say anything other than, okay, this is it. There's no treatment. There's nothing outside of prepare for the worst and kind of hope for the best. That was really the, the mantra that was going on in my head, but I had a really great swim coach at the time. Um, her name is Janine Carpenter. She, mm-hmm. she sat down when this was all going on and she said, I had a choice. Um, you know, I could sit around and, and pick the easy choice of this is depressing and make that become like a woe is me moment, or I could do the right thing and, and leave a legacy. And that's, that's what she kind of said to me at the beginning. Um, when I sat down with her to say like, Hey, I'm losing my vision. That's why I've been out of practice for a couple of weeks. Um, cause I was in and out, uh, just going to doctor's appointments all the time. And when we finally figured it out, you know, I had to sit down with her and tell her this is what's going on. Um, and, and thankfully my parents were very supportive and saying like, whatever he needs, like he needs to go to the pool. He needs to go to practice. Like we're here to help, um, with that piece. Um, and, and the great thing is that the sport of swimming, let me continue. Um, even though I was becoming this blind swimmer, if you will. So, so I think that just kind of all of it at once, um, really tested me and, and my network really, and, and who I was as a person and relying on my friends in the pool to tell me, you know, when are we leaving? If I was leaving a leading a lane or, you know, what time did I just go? Cause I couldn't see those things. Yeah. Now you've described it to me in terms of what you can see. I, I remember you saying, you know, if you ball, roll up your fist, describe mm. to me how it, how it, you know, what your vision looks like right now. Yeah. So if I look directly like into the camera or if I look directly at someone, it's basically like a black hole. So it's the reverse of tunnel vision. Um, And a lot of um, at the fitter faster clinics that I coach, I always tell the kids, like if you ball up your fists and put them in front of your eyes and kind of look past your hands, Mm -hmm. um, that's what I see. I I can still see in color. Um, It's just kind of all out of my periphery. Um, so I'm watching the lane ropes as I swim, as well as counting my strokes, counting my dolphin kicks, everything to make sure that I have that lane awareness of, of kind of where I am. And it just kind of just changed, right? I just need to figure out that consistent formula, if you will, of how I was going to be successful in the pool. Is it normal for it to stay like that for the rest of your life? Or is it, is it something that is degenerative over time? Um, so it's interesting because some of the research that I've read about this condition is some people actually get vision back. Um, our bodies are made to heal themselves, right? So if, um, the atrophy that I have in my optic nerve right now, um, there is a possibility of gaining some of that vision back down the road. Um, but also the older I get, there's that other side of the fence of it could go the other way and I could lose more vision. Um, but Thankfully, um, I've been able to really live my life through accessible technology. Um, my computer reads to me, my phone reads to me, um, which takes a lot of that stress off of my eyes of being really close to a computer um, or having to you know, strain my eyes, if you will. So um, thankfully, those things are in place. Um, if this would have happened you know, 30 years ago, I might not have that opportunity. Um, so I would say just from the adaptability of um, just all the resources out there, um, it doesn't really scare me. But as of um, my last eye appointment last year, my vision has been sustained um, at the same amount of uh, that field of vision um, for about three or four years. So Mm -hmm. it's plateaued. I haven't lost any vision in quite some time, which is great. Knock on wood. Um, But uh, yeah, it, it could possibly happen. 
Now, this the, the great thing about this is it wasn't necessarily the end of your swimming career. This was kind of the beginning, and this is where it blossomed for you, and this is where it really took off. You end up becoming uh, a Paralympic swimmer and going on to multiple um, games where you represent the U.S. and, and win medals. So let's talk about that. How, where, where did that evolve from in terms of becoming a Paralympic swimmer? Yeah, so um, in, so in that time of me losing my vision, um, I had the opportunity to go to a place called the Governor Moorhead School for the Blind. Um, and the purpose of that was I was going on the weekends to learn, um, you know, what technologies are out there to kind of um, just fill that void of missing my vision. Um, and word kind of got around that I was an athlete um, and somebody asked me if I had heard about the Paralympics. Um, and mind you, this is 2007. Um, so Paralympics were not even close to where they have come from um, at that time. And, and I was like, yeah, I'm swimming. And they're like, well, you should meet this other athlete named Alexis Gillette. And I was like, okay, what does he do? And they're like, oh, he's a blind runner. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, he runs track. And I was like, how the hell do you run track if you're completely blind? Like I had never heard of this before. Cause I had this vision in my head of like people running all over the tracks, not staying in their lanes. And I'm like, what? And they're like, no, he has a guide runner and he runs beside someone. And you know, he's counting or they have a communication where they're, um, their hands are interlaced by a shoestring behind the backs of their hands. So their hands are synced up as they're running. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's pretty impressive. I'm like, well, how do I get involved in this? And so I linked up with Lex and found out about the Paralympics. And um, what a lot of people ask too is um, in the Paralympics, you race against people that have the same disability. So I'm not going to swim against someone missing a hand or an arm or a leg or both. So um, we get classified. So I was, I had to get classified first mm -hmm. um, so that the playing field is fair. And then after um, I had my classification, they were like, you could go compete at a Paralympic meet. Um, and I, my swim coach, Janine and I got on an airplane, we flew to Canada um, and I competed at my first Paralympic meet. And I, every time I dove in, I was breaking American records that were like 30 years old. <laughs> and I was like, this is crazy. Like I went from not knowing what Paralympics were to the fastest blind swimmer in the United States, like overnight. So, um, it kind of came very quickly as well. And then the next year is 2008. So, um, it was a very fast learning curve of how do I, you know, what are trials look like? What does the selection process look like? Because the United States Paralympic swim team is picked a lot differently than the Olympic team. Um, Paralympics and swimming is actually picked off of the world rankings, not the United States rankings. So you could be first in every event at trials and not go to the games uh, because they want to make sure that you're within that top percentile. That's basically going to win a medal for the United States. So um, yeah, it kind of just turned into, hello, here's the Paralympics. You're, kick-ass blind swimmer let's see what we can do with it um and beijing was my first games so wow that's awesome is it hard to find events like meets for paralympic athletes absolutely um i think that a lot of that um struggle comes from um the uh, i would say the education as well as um the understanding of like the rules because mm -hmm. there are different rules right so if you're an athlete missing a hand how do you finish in breaststroke? Because there's a two hand touch, right? So like things like that, that your normal referees at majority LSCs probably would be like, I don't know what to do with that. You know? So I think that 
having an adaptive um, like education and also like finding that ability of getting in um, to just having the qualifying times and all of that um, is a movement. And so I would say that the more Paralympic athletes that come out and kind of come into those environments um, are going to help with that movement. But I do think that um, it's very common that you see a lot of Paralympians um, training, um, you know, on club teams that, you know, might be with 11 and unders when they're 18 years old, because that's the only, you know, times they can keep up with in practice. So how do they go to a senior championship if they don't even have the MQS or something like that? So I would say it really gets tough as an athlete with a disability to try and race on the able-bodied side, as well as um, a lot of the referees knowing like how to accommodate their needs. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely coming along, um, especially from when it started in 2007, but um, it's, it's going to still take some time, especially in the United States. Now talk to me about your Beijing experience. You do qualify for the Paralympics uh, just, you know, after being diagnosed a couple of years earlier. And so what was that experience like? I was a kid. <laughs> I was a kid. I think that being 19 years old and showing up to the water cube and, and swimming in front of, you know, 20,000 people, it was a very big learning experience for me. Um, but also I was very naive. I went in with like very, low expectation of, I'm just so glad that I get to be here. I was top eight in every finish that I, I, every race that I swam. Um, and I think that it just took some time. Um, I, I swam a, um, six event program. I was still swimming the two I am mm. the 400 free, um, the hundred free, the 50 free hundred back hundred fly. Um, and, and I think that's a lot to attribute to, I was swimming on a club team where I was like, you have to swim all the events. And if you swim all the events, I wasn't really a specialist yet. Um, so Beijing was just getting my foot wet, no pun intended. Um, so it was a lot of fun. I think that, um, being in the water cube a couple of weeks after Michael Phelps, you know, winning eight gold medals was, uh, very opening to me and just being able to say like, wow, this is, you know, one of the largest sporting events in the world too, as a Paralympian and seeing other athletes from other countries and, and seeing their like entourage and all of that, it was more like, wow, this is like a really big deal because in the United States, I only knew what I was exposed to at the time. So, um, I didn't realize that, you know, you could have sponsorships and you could have, um, you know, the things that we see Olympians have in the United States, Paralympians could do that too. So I just, kind of chalk up Beijing to uh, a great learning experience and kind of lighten that fire for the next quad for me and, and making sure that I was racing at the top of my game for the next four years to get ready for London. And then, so after that experience, I mean, your, your career really took off. You start going to world championships and, and winning gold medals at world championships in the lead up to the next Olympics. Um, that, that must be pretty cool to be, to be called a, a world champion, right? Yeah, I, I, it was, uh, I had a coach that had some tough love, um, for me when I got back from Beijing and every day I was like, oh, I'm tired, like uh, whatever the negative talk I was saying, he would always say like, well, what color was your fourth place medal? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that kicked me in the ass, right? I was like, it, it, it's, uh, I don't have a medal, so I need to kind of get my, my stuff in order. So, um, I, I think that, Beijing being that catalyst of helping myself uh, understand my potential and and finding the right coaches to swim for and also have that opportunity to 
to kind of see what made me tick. Um, I swam for a lot of different coaches all over the United States and, and finding some of those better seasons and, and kind of what was going on um, to make me successful um, really helped shape those, you know, that, that next four years. I moved out to the Olympic training center. Um, I lived at um, the OTC for a couple of years and, and I was really trying to hone in on how I was going to put my hand on the wall first uh, going into 2012. And, and I was able to do that at world championships. I was beating those people that had beat me in Beijing. So I was like, okay, you know, coming home with medals and staying in that top three in the world um, really helped me kind of understand like, all right, London's a year, you know, one more year to go. We can, if we get better and better, you know, it's, it's going to help me be able to come home with some hardware. So um, yeah, I think the world championships were a great test um, to kind of see where I was at in my season, but also just kind of what was working, what wasn't. So um, it was, it was, a, it was a good in between those two games, um, getting that confidence, putting together that perfect race and, and having that option to say like, I beat these guys before, you know, when I get to London, um, that, that was my ultimate goal. Whenever I dove in from my first race going into those games. You start to figure out who your competition is, like on a world stage, you start to know the players, you know, who's who, and, you know, maybe even meet them. And like, is there, is there rivalry starting to build up here as well? Totally, totally. And, and uh, when you get to those top tier meets, I think that you start to understand that you, I, I, I was that athlete at one time, but you could see people kind of get in their zone, if you will, when you're in the call room, right? Like you're in there 40 minutes before your race and you're progressing through the room. And on top of that, you kind of just start to learn that, you know, I can't talk to that person because they don't want to talk to me or I need to kind of get in my zone. So you, you kind of put together that, like, like I said, that formula of, of what's making you get ready um, to make sure that when you step up, it's, it's autopilot because you've done the work. So, um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've had it all things from uh, a competitor look at me and sitting next to him and he's the number one seed and he pulled my short pants, like, uh, the, the leg of my shorts up and looked at my tech suit and was like, you think you're going to beat me in that? And I was like, yeah, I am like stuff like that of like just the mental game, um, and understanding like their strategies and kind of seeing how they, they would race throughout the season. So yeah, definitely finding those rivalries and, and, uh, and enjoying the process, right. That, that's what it's, that's what it's all about. I enjoyed the racing and, and really seeing how far I could push my body to, uh, to win a medal. You know, you talked about getting in the heads. I know you're not immune to a good blind joke either. Do you, do you throw some of those, those jokes in there in the, in the ready room? Always, always, you know, it's blind jokes are the best because you don't see them coming. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, you, you kind of get into that. Like I said, I, you kind of find out, like, for example, I had to listen to slow music. And I know that sounds crazy, but um, I learned that when I started listening to like really exciting music that I was like, yeah. got me super hyped up. I was like, I need to reverse that and say, hey, actually, I need to calm down. Yeah. So it it was learning how to dance the dance, right? Like that, that was the biggest part and, and getting to do that in between the games was a lot of fun. Now, 2012 was where you really um, have, a, have a mixed bag. I mean, that, that's where you talk about your experience a lot because I know it was a very interesting Olympics for you. Um, talk to me about that one. Yeah, so going into London, um, I had acquired a lot of things going into that games where 
I had built that confidence. I had swam world championships. I was a world champion. Um, you know, I, I was knew I could win. Um, and I still was in the top five in the world in the 400 free. Um, and at that time, um, about a year out from the games, um, our national team director started talking to my coach about, you know, Tucker's still really good at the 400. Maybe he should swim that. And I hated that event so mm -hmm. much. It yeah. was just like, I didn't enjoy it. So it was, uh, I still had to, you know, all right, fine, I'll do it. So I swam the 400 freestyle and I finished fifth right where I was seated. And I was like exhausted going into the hundred fly that next day. Mm. Um, and the problem was that I was top three in the world in the hundred fly. Um, so I went from a race that I hated and was terrible at to swimming one of my top, top events. And, mm. um, I swam the hundred butterfly touched the wall and I got out touched by like two tenths. And I was like, and I couldn't, I couldn't help, but not think, well, if I didn't swim the 400, maybe I wouldn't have done that. You know, maybe I would have won something or at least, uh, you know, any medal would have been better than fourth. And so after that, um, I actually left the Olympic village for a couple of days. Um, and I, I went out, um, met up with my parents, went shopping, just kind of got my mind off of the games and, and had to kind of sit down and my coach, you know, at the time, this was like giving the, she gave me an iPad and she was like, I want you to watch this for me. And she had taken my hundred butterfly um, from when I walked out of the, the call room up to the blocks. And um, that was it. That was the clip. It was just me walking up to the blocks like mm. over and over again. And she was like, I need you to watch this and come back to me and tell me what you see whenever you, you know, figure it out. And mm. I was like, okay. So I'm sitting in the stands, like watching, it's like finals is getting ready to start for a session. I wasn't swimming. And I was like, okay, I'm bored of watching this clip. What, why do you, I just look angry. And she was like, exactly. Like you, you're angry. It's just like, you're not an angry person. Like enjoy this. Like, I understand that like, this is a swim me, you know, that means a lot to you and it has a lot of pressure on it. But at the end of the day, this is just a swim me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, it literally was like that light switched in my head. And I was like, I need to have fun. Like, that's what, that's why I'm here. And and so I swam the hundred freestyle and, um, finished that race, winning a bronze medal. And, and when I won that medal, I remember getting out of the pool and I walked around over to the area, um, where the guy was like holding like the bin of like all my clothes. And, um, I said, I walked up to him and I was like, man, I bet you never met someone so excited to win a bronze medal before. And <laughs> the guy looked at me and he was like, the Italian guy before he was uh, pretty excited. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> true. <laughs> so I think that, uh, it finally breaking through that glass ceiling and, and having that opportunity to understand like, okay, like this is justice for me um, was something that I was like, all right, you know what, this, I just kind of got to make sure I leave it all in the pool and not have that anger when I walk out and just enjoy the ride because all the hard work was done. Um, and it's time to showcase all of that whenever you go to, to the game. So um, after that, I swam the hundred backstroke, won a silver medal in the hundred backstroke. And then I won a bronze medal in the 50 freestyle. So it was uh, a lot of fun to kind of get on the podium and, and be a part of the team and contributing to the team's medal count um, and, and having that opportunity to, to win some medals for uh, Team USA. Yeah, but it's a great message too. You know, like I think it doesn't matter who you are. We've all had those moments where we're putting a lot of pressure on ourselves. We may swim an event. We don't want to swim. Things aren't going our way. You know, we just it just seems like we're not in the right headspace. And then someone points out, hey, you know, this isn't you pull it back in. And, and all of a sudden 
everything changes for you and you, you end up having a great meet and swimming really fast and, and winning medals. So that message really pertains to all of us. Yeah. And I think that, uh, it, it takes riding the ride, I guess, if you will, um, to, to understand that, right. Like, I feel like you've got to be in that environment and also it's got to click. I think that I've told a lot, like you can say that to people like, Oh, you just have, it's this easier. You just got to do this. And, and I think that it, it's, it's like, you've got to find that formula of, of what's going to work for you. Or, or, you know, I used to explain this to some, some of uh, some other kids is like, it's like shooting a free throw in the NBA. When you see someone shoot a free throw, like they have a formula. It's like, I'm going to bounce the ball twice. I'm going to check it, bounce it again and shoot it. That might not be the same formula that the next person steps up to the free throw line to do, but it works for them. And I think that's where swim meets that might not be the championship meet is the best opportunity to try some of those things out of like, all right, I had a bad race. Why? It wasn't, maybe it was the technical side of it, but where, what was I thinking or where was my head during that race? Um, and, and really getting that opportunity to find um, what's going to help you kind of be at ease or, or what makes you you know, shoot that perfect three free throw. And so after that experience, you decide to go another four years, right? You're, you're <laughs> did, I did. Punishment. Uh, I did. I, uh, I saw, I signed up uh, myself, um, for four more years. Um, and I swam in Rio, um, which was a lot of fun as well. Um, uh, being, uh, more of a veteran on the team and having that option to know what, what to expect, um, really helped me kind of say like, all right, I understand when I'm in the call room, you know, Maxime Varaksa, who's going to win the 50 free, probably like sitting next to him, like he's going to probably pick on somebody and like do his thing. And it's like, you just kind of understand the process a lot more. And, um, and Rio was, was a lot of fun. I, I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, I enjoyed Rio a lot having, I won a, a bronze medal in the hundred backstroke and, and uh, being able to leave that games, knowing that uh, that was the last games I would go to. Um, I remember going up into the stands afterwards and, and looking down into the arena. And um, I, I cried, like thinking like, I'll never get to go down there and be in the lights again. And, and everyone's like screaming for you. So I, uh, it was a better, a bittersweet um, departure, but also uh, I, I know I, I did everything I could to uh, leave it all in the pool and build a lot of phenomenal relationships and uh, have an opportunity to have friends all around the world and, and really just enjoy and immerse myself in the whole experience. What's it like to be part of a, a Paralympic swim team? You know, I, there are so many different, um, you know, challenges for, for different people. You know, you've got your challenge, some, the person next to you has something completely different. But uh, I guess at, at that point in Rio, you were able to be a mentor to a lot of young kids who maybe just be attending their first Olympics and talk them through some of your experiences as well, right? Definitely. And, and I think that that's something that really, um, like looking back on my sporting career, uh, made me realize that people with disabilities um, are people. And, and that's something that I've really tried to use as like my platform as someone with a disability is that I want to be treated the same way that you would treat an able-bodied swimmer or anyone in public. You know, I don't want special treatment. I don't want somebody to think like, oh, I'm feel so bad for him. Like, yeah, I don't. Is that like, the way they all feel as well? No, I, I think that it depends on um, how new they might be um, just because 
like they kind of have that green about them. You know, it's like, oh, wow, like this is a huge pool and you get all these free clothes and you, you kind of get it kind of hits you with shock. Um, but I would say that all of our teammates, um, you know, everyone has that um, unspoken respect of, you know, we all are here and you're literally at the top of your class. So it's like, all right, like we're here to do work. And so there's no, I don't, I don't think that amongst the teammates and coaches from any country, there's that pity or like any type of like, um, you know, just feeling sad about what's going on. It's more like, no, we're here to kick some ass and win some medals. Like that's why we are showing up to this meet. Um, so I would say that the younger kids that came on those trips, you know, it's, you, you enjoy to kind of sit back and watch them like just go through the experience and just say like, wow, I remember Beijing, you know, getting suitcase on suitcase of free clothes and, and just feeling like, what? Like I came from this little town in North Carolina to literally halfway across the world in Beijing, China to, to race. And I'm wearing team USA, you know, like that pride and all of those things just kind of mixed into one. Um, just, yeah, it just, it's, an, it's, it's awesome. You can't put words to it. Do you have teammates uh, that are inspiring to you? You know, you look at them and, and think to yourself, wow, that is like truly inspiring, even though they're, they're your teammates. Definitely. Um, I, I, I would say, especially from other sports, um, I, I think that seeing some other, having, being at the Olympics, you know this too, like you get to go see other sports, right? On an yeah. off day, like go to a track event or, um, you know, there's sports in the Paralympics that aren't in the Olympics, like goalball, which is a sport that's only for blind people, um, which is like a form of soccer where like the ball has a bell in it and everyone is completely blindfolded. And to go to an event like that where you can't cheer because the blind people on the court are trying to listen for a ball, right? Mm. Like totally like blows your mind, you know, or, you know, seeing Alexis Gillette, the guy I spoke about before, like win a silver medal in the long jump, completely blind, like running as fast as you can and then jumping and not being able to see at all. And he explains long jump as completely blind is like running down a, a hallway with the lights off and then jumping as far as you can. Wow. And he has like a guide runner basically that claps and he runs towards that clap. And then when it's time to jump, his clap um, or the, his guide runner will step to the side and then Lex jumps. I mean, like adaptive things like that, that I think people just don't understand and really get about the Paralympics that you're like, wow, I wouldn't even want to try it, let alone like compete in that world. So I think that just seeing other athletes do their sport and see that, you know, they've practiced their whole life, um, you know, doing something with a disability is just, it's so surreal. And just seeing and having, like I said, that respect of like, wow, you don't have any arms, but you're going to go shoot a bow and arrow, like Matt Studsman. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff where you're like, and he's the nicest guy. Like, what do you do to someone that doesn't have any arms when you go to meet them? You don't, Hey, nice to meet you, Matt. Like he's so light about it. He'll like pound it. He'll like put his shoulder up and you like, you know, fist bump his shoulder, like stuff like that, where I'm like, I don't know what to do when I meet you. Like stuff like that just really helps, you know, break your mind out of like normal and, and seeing them do their sport and do it very well. And at the top of the world is, is a great experience. And I hope everyone can go see the Paralympics in some point of their life because it, it'll definitely change your life. Well, it really does go to show the limitations we put on ourselves, you know, and then when, sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I think of you 
you know, and I think to myself, like, and you don't feel sorry for yourself by any means, trust me. Um, but, you know, you, you think of people who do have disabilities, you think to yourself, like, I, what am I complaining about? I've got everything I could possibly need. Is it frustrating for you sometimes to hear able-bodied people complain? Um, I think it's normal. I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's okay. I think that um, it, it's just one of those things. I mean, I have those days, right? Like, I have some days where I'm like, gosh like why like nothing is clicking today right and, and i think that you know it's it's easy to kind of go into that headspace of like um all right like i don't i hate this or this practice whatever and i think that you just kind of sit down and say like um you know that that crossroads that you're out out of it's easy to have that mind space or that that headspace of like i'm mad i'm upset i can't do this or you can do the right thing and say like all right let's have a pause let's step back and let's change that and do it the right way. Um, it's just like a dilemma we all have, but I I do, I do look at other, the other people and I'm like, I can't imagine what it would be like to live my whole life without arms or I can't imagine. And I, again, I probably said that if you were to talk to 16 year old me before I lost my vision and said, like, I want you to imagine what it's like to be blind. I would Mm. probably be like, you're crazy. Why would I do that? Yeah. Right. Like, but now that I have it, I'm like, well, I live it every day. <laughs> so you just, just adapt. Kind of adapt. Yeah. yeah, you adapt to it. Exactly. Yeah, I like that word. Well, what are you doing these days? I know that you're pretty high up in a, in a certain company. Talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, so um, I work at BP, um, the gas company, and I actually am moving to a new role. Um, and I'm going to help BP uh, become one of the most accessible energy companies in the world. Um, so I am currently in a marketing position um, I work in social media um, and I help do a lot of digital marketing um, pieces at BP, uh, but I'm moving to a role um, to help us become more accessible, to have um, more people at our company um, have the opportunity to work at BP with the disability. So it's uh, really near and dear to my heart. And I'm uh, really excited that our leadership team um, has believed in me and they know that I can do that. And I'm really pumped to kind of start that new journey in July and and uh, take on the world of accessibility and helping more people like myself come into our company. That's super cool, man. You have a great story. You lead a great life. And um, I love working with you at Fitter and Faster Clinics. You know, it it frustrates me sometimes when people um, see that there's going to be a blind swimmer leading a clinic and they think to themselves, how is this possible? And then we get the reviews back after the clinic and they say, Tucker's the the best teacher we've ever had. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, I mean, you do when you're at a clinic, you you can see people out, out the corners of your eyes and you can pick up on technique better than I can pick up on it. Sometimes you'll spot something and I'll be like, damn, Tucker, that's, you know, so you've just found a way to see the things you need to see, I guess. Yeah. And I, I think that I always tell people at the beginning of like my uh, introduction at Fitter Faster, after I explain that I'm blind, I always joke around and I'm like, it's okay. Parents, you didn't waste your money. I can still see everyone. Your kids will still get the you know, same amount of attention as I normally would. Um, I think that it's great to have that opportunity for kids to see like someone with a disability too, of like, whoa, like he can't see, like, like you said, like I was complaining about not going to practice yesterday because I was tired or, you know, my shoulder hurt. And then this guy, I had all those things too, right? Like I wasn't immune to those things. I had shoulder pain, body pain, but I still had to check my disability at the door, every practice, every swim meet, every time I came into the pool and, and that's the best thing about our sport is that it's an even playing field and 
And I enjoy having the opportunity to take all this knowledge of swimming and give it back to our community and, and just really show people that like, I'm a person with a disability, even in that sentence, the word person comes first and, and treat me like that. And I'm going to give you all of my attention and make sure that you have a great swimming experience with us at Fitter and Faster. And the other most, one of the most impressive things about you is what's your best time in the 50 free? Oh man. Um, short course, I think it was like 19 and some change. And then long course was like 22, nine, 23 low. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're 22 second 50 freestyler, a blind 50 freestyle. There's, there's people that would, uh, that would kill for that sort of speed <laughs> who, who have two able eyes, you know? So, um, I mean, you can really go when you got, when you, I've seen you go at the top end, man, you can really turn it on. So it's impressive <laughs> to see. So, uh, mate, I love catching up with you today. I appreciate yeah. sharing your story. It's an honor. I finally made the Brett Hawk podcast you did man you did inside (laughs) with brett hawk tucker dupree thanks for being here mate thanks for having me see you buddy see ya